0: Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show.
1: So welcome back to the podcast for the perplexed. I have a subject that I am very perplexed over, one that I've been struggling with, and I know it's one that's very important. You know, Since I started studying many years ago, you begin to look at the world a lot differently. I remember taking a class from Rabbi Cohen early on on Kabbalah 101, and it truly began to just transform the way I perceived the world. I would get ready in the morning, I would brush my teeth and do the things I needed to do to get ready in the morning, as I began to see myself in the mirror, I began to realize that what I am looking at is not me. It is just the vessel which I exist within to interact within this world. And it was a new way of approaching my existence and my role and who I really am. And I remember early on, I had a, uh, a dream. It was a, a dream where I was really good friends with Richard Branson, and he was, at that point, testing out his new plane that would take orbital flights outside the Earth's atmosphere into space. And he said, Dan, you want to go up for a test ride with me? And I said, absolutely. So we get on this plane, and we're up over the Earth's atmosphere. I can see the atmosphere below me. And all of a sudden, the plane begins to break apart. And all of a sudden, it explodes. And now I'm just hurling through space. And I'm frantically trying to get in the earth's atmosphere so I can breathe. So I know I'm suffocating. And I remember just frantically pulling my legs under the earth's atmosphere, just trying to get my head underneath it as well as I knew in any amount of time I would suffocate. And I was just struggling forever. And finally, I just let go with my body under the earth's atmosphere and my head in space and just found that tranquility there. And then I woke up. And so the next day I called Rabbi Cohen. And I said, I know dreams are typically nonsense. If this means anything, what does it mean? And he said, it means that you're ready to begin learning Torah. Because that is sort of what we are learning how to do, is use our Torah study to bring God's holy Torah from the heavens into this world. And I know that this is something I struggle with, existing in both realms at the same time. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I like to always get up early when it's dark outside. The house is quiet. My family has not waken up and begin my studies. My studying curriculum was pretty much guided by Amazon early on. Like the first book I came across was Rabbi Luzoto's book, The Way of God. And that just totally blew my mind away. And then it said, you may also like the path of the just. And I said, okay. And I read that. And it said, readers who read The Path of the Just may like the ways of the Sadikam I said, okay. And it led to duties of the heart, and that's how my studying sort of went. A few years ago, I was at Rabbi Yokov Wolby's home for Shabbat, and I was talking to many people there, and they were talking about they have kids in school. And I said, so what's the curriculum like for the kids? And they said they study Chumash when they're in elementary school, then they move on to Mishnah in middle school. And the boys, by the time they have their bar mitzvah, they go off to yeshiva, and they study Talmud. And I thought to myself, you know, you didn't start studying toward the age of 40. So now I'm 50. I'm about to turn 51 next month. So I look at myself that I'm basically 11 years old and I'm trying to get myself ready for when I turn 13. So I've I focused my studying quite a bit to bring some more order to it. I ordered all the Mishnah. I had ordered the Shokona I was still sort of studying a lot of things intermittently as well and many texts at the same time. But I decided to... I need to focus and prioritize things so i i decided to focus and finish up the Rook. i think i'm like a week away from that that way i can just focus totally on the mishnah so i will hopefully get through that by the time i am 53 or 13 and can begin studying talmud so i have this this regimen the study regimen in the morning and when i'm studying you can't help but just get to such a level where you just feel so disconnected from the mundane in the world and then i go work out and shower up and say my prayers now it's time to get to work. And I don't want to get to work. It just seems so trivial to be engaged in this, but I know I have to. I have people depending on me, colleagues. And God wouldn't put them in my life if he didn't want me to to work with them and build this business with them. And I know I have some people, a very large family now that has grown outside of my wife and daughter, but to all the places of Torah learning that I support with my Sadaka. So I know I have to get in. I feel like I'm just jumping into another world. And then I love it once I'm there. I love the creative aspect of it. I love the initiatives that are coming to fruition now. And nothing gets my adrenaline going more than when I'm on a sales call. I have the ideas, the conviction behind it. I love the idea, and I can convey those. I love it. But at the end of the day, I realize, like, where was your Torah? Where was your godliness in that entire endeavor? And I read something else interesting, too, recently that also shaped my my studying. I read that the menorah and the mishkan, And the temple had seven branches to it that equal the days of the week. And that middle branch, the highest one, that represents Shabbos. So the way to look at the days of the week is not Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday up to Shabbos. It's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And on Shabbos, it was saying that's the day to study Kabbalah and other types of texts. And then the other days of the week, that's when you study how to live in this world. You know, when you're you're studying texts like that and you're looking at Shabbos ending, and it's like, I don't want to go back into the work week. You know, there's this idea in economics called creative destruction, you know, where more innovative industries that will enhance the world come into being through the destruction of others. And if there's one industry that I know that is going to be creatively destroyed in the times of Mashiach is the investment industry where I work. I mean, there's going to be so much financial abundance, I don't see why people are going to be needing what I do. So it's like I have to go back in the week and be involved in an endeavor that has no permanence to it whatsoever. And a couple of years ago, I had an idea. I decided I wanted to apply for a new position. It was a position that I was perfect for. It was running an endowment fund, a very large endowment fund that supported yeshivas around the globe. And I prepared my resume. It was perfect. I have close to 30 years now, investment experience. I teach financial professionals on how to do distribution planning. I have studied all the the laws around Sadaka giving. I even thought on ways of creating an algorithm that would ensure that my biases were not involved with my giving. And I thought this is going to be a perfect job for me because it would only take me a couple hours a day to do and then I could move to Jerusalem. I could study in a yeshiva. I could say Torah all day and really just amp up my learning and not be dragged down into all this mundane type activity. So I presented my resume, the business plan to the employer. And then that evening, when I went around the corner to the liquor store, I bought the lottery ticket to the Powerball. It was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. And that Shabbos, I said, Hashem, I am perfect for this job. Look at my resume. Not only that, but not only have I been giving tzedakah diligently, but I've been up to 20%. So, you know, I don't think you could ask for a better resume for me to have this job. You just have to fund it now and let me win the lottery. And after Shabbos, I got online and looked and I didn't get the job. I couldn't figure out, like, why did you give it to some guy that's just going to blow through it, buying a bunch of houses and speedboats? And nonsense, like most lottery winners do. I mean, this was a great business idea I was presenting to you. I didn't understand why he did not want to give it to me. And I was thinking maybe the money would get to me. Maybe I would not put it in the endowment fund. Maybe I would use it for myself. I don't know, but I was very distraught over this, why he would not give me this job. And that next Shabbos, I read the Parsha talking about the sin of the spies. And that gave me my answer because the Jews were in the wilderness living in this world that I sort of want to live in, where they just studied Torah, had all their needs provided to them by God. And when God said, now go into the land of Israel, I totally empathize on why they said, we don't want to go. And they were punished for that because God needed them to go in the land of Israel. And it did happen 40 years later. And I think that is a big part of all of this is that we are supposed to bring our Torah with us into the world. And the other thing I was thinking about this last Shabbos, because one of the things I like to do is I like to think about when I die. I've learned that when you die in the heavenly realm, you are standing in front of the heavenly court and you're not in the realm of time. So you're able to sort of quickly see your life and, and review it with the heavenly court and in God's presence. Which is a horrifying thought, but I learned that if you do Teshuva, that piece that you really don't want played gets removed from the video. So I'm constantly doing that because I constantly want to do Teshuva for anything in my past to remove that from the video script. So I don't have to watch it in humiliation in front of my creator. So at this point, the video is going to look like it's a trailer for a movie because I'm just carving out everything I don't want God to see. But the idea I was thinking about yesterday because I was thinking about this topic was if I do everything I want to do, I get through the mission, I start studying Talmud, and God gives me enough time to go through the Talmud several times over through the Dolph I was thinking, what if God says, You got a lot of studying done, but you never brought my Torah into the world? So you really didn't do anything constructive for me. I gave you head to fill in so you could bring clarity to your Torah knowledge, but I also gave you arm to fill in. So that arm to fill in is is pointed towards your heart. So you bring that Torah wisdom into your emotive qualities. And then I have you wrap it around your hand before you wrap it around your ring finger, wetting yourself to me so that you will bring it into the world of action. And you just went through life, either living in the world of action, but you never brought my Torah into the world of action. So you did not help me. And that thought terrified me. So this is something that I definitely need to learn a lot about. And I brought on for us, Rabbi linter who is not only a Torah scholar, but he also has to live his week in the business world. So I thought, who is better equipped to teach us on this subject? So thank you so much, Rabbi, for being here with us and giving us action items and tools and things to do that we can make sure we're accomplishing what we're supposed to be doing, which is taking Torah into every facet of our life.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's an amazing question, query that you are pondering. And I think that, in fact, this is probably reflected very well inside of the prayer that we say right before the Shema the Shema podcast. Right before the Shema, we say a prayer in the morning, which is basically describes the love that God has for us in giving us the Torah and what our mission in the world is. And what do we say? That we ask God, give me the power, the strength, the ability. We ask for a number of things. Lilmod, to learn, to study. Ulilameid, and to teach. Lishmor, to guard the Torah, and to do the Torah, and to fulfill it. And I was just thinking as you were talking that this is exactly what you're describing. Is this the full mission of the Jewish person? Male, female, adult, child? This is our mission. God gave us the Torah and said, I want you to learn it, to study it, and be diligent about that. But I want you to keep in mind that there are other parts of this mission. The other parts of the mission are that you're not just learning it for yourself. I want you to learn it to share it with others. Not only do I want you to share it with others, which that in and of itself comes with a whole set of responsibilities. The clarity that you have to attain in a subject matter in order to be able to share it with someone else. That's a tremendous level of clarity. Okay, but I want you to do that. Not only do I want you to do that, I want you to guard the Torah. Not just the contents of the Torah, not just the words of the Torah, not even just the physical Torah scroll or Torah books that we treat with sanctity don't just guard it that way, but I want you to guard it in that your entire life should be a staying away from the negative commandments, from the things that I tell you not to do. So use this as your guidebook, sort of as your guide rails, your guardrails on the side of the steep cliff, your guardrails that are saying, this is as far as you're able to go. Guard it. And then asot, do it in the positive way. What you study and what you're engaged in the study of Torah contains in it a whole set of things that we do. Positive commandments, ways that we act, positive attributes that we can attain through the studying of Torah. So do those. But don't only guard it and do it, but be mikhayem. fulfill it. And I think that that adds a whole nother level to this discussion, is that I'm not just staying away from the things I'm not supposed to do and doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing, but I am actually fulfilling them. I'm doing them in a way that is making them full inside. What does that mean? That I'm doing the commandments in a way that fills me up and that makes me feel spiritually connected to the creator. That every time that we stay away from something that we're not supposed to do and every time that we do something that we're supposed to do, It is meant to give us that feeling inside that I feel. I can experience that. I can sense that closeness to the creator and to the commander. If that's what we're being told to do, then this is an amazing discussion that we need to have about looking at our lives and saying, are we fulfilling these bullet points, the major obligations of a Jew? What are the obligations of a Jew in this world? And we just laid it out. That's exactly how the rabbis wrote it in the prayer, tells us exactly what we're meant to be doing. Okay, so let's talk about how we're supposed to do it. What is the struggle at that moment when you or a person who is studying Torah and really feels at that moment very connected to Hashem, very connected to God. What exactly is going on in that struggle, in that moment of struggle, as you pull away from the studying, as you pull away from what you've described as this little bubble that you've created, this bubble of growth— as you pull away from that and you sort of step out the front door in, or into the study, into the office, or you you know, open your computer if you're doing remote working and you log on to the system, what is that moment of struggle? What's going on? And I believe that when we are studying Torah, especially when we're studying Torah and recognizing that this is not just the Torah, but this is the Torah of the Creator— When we're doing that and translating it all the way through to the end of the story, that this is like the will of Hashem, the will of God in this world, right here in this book in front of me. If we're translating, if we're actually studying in that way, then you know what is being pleasured at that moment? Which part of us? And you alluded to it. In the opening, what is gaining pleasure? What is attaining pleasure at that moment is our soul. Our soul is able to express itself inside of the physical world. Because when you think about Torah study, it's an amazing thing. It's actually a very physical thing. There's a book in front of you, or a scroll, if it may be, if you're old school like that. There's a scroll or a book in front of you. You're studying words that are written in ink. These are all physical things. And what tool are you using to study those? Your brain, the hub. This is command center of your body, right? And we always talk about a physical side of us, that's our body, and a spiritual side of us, that's our soul. And yet here we have, we're engaged in a very spiritual activity, studying Torah, the Torah of the Creator, and we're doing it with our very physical side. And what the rabbis tell us is that, in fact, that moment of studying Torah is the moment that our soul is able to express itself inside of the physical world without the study of Torah or the accomplishment of doing a mitzvah without doing those things the soul would be like you buy a piece of land that has no streets going to it the value is pretty low that's our soul our soul is like locked inside of our body with no ability to interface with the world And the rabbis tell us that the soul's moment of ability to be expressed and to come out into the world, that moment is the moment of studying Torah. So the soul is gaining tremendous amounts of pleasure. It says, oh, finally, I'm able to come out into the world and do what my mission is, is to bring godliness into the world and to infuse this person, this body, this human being with godliness and bring these ideas of what God wants in the world down into the world. Okay, that's an amazing thing. Your soul feels incredible. What's the struggle? The struggle then when we stop the study and we go to work— Or we stop the study and we go give our kids a bath if they're that age. Or we go sit down at the computer and work through a math problem with our kids. We work through something, try to help them out. Or we help our kid apply for a credit card. We help our kid get a car. We help our kid apply for a job. We go out into the world. So we go to work. We do all these things. The mistake I think we make, and we'll talk about it, but the mistake I think we make is that we think we're stepping away from that moment of spirituality. But I think that what we need to understand is that we were put into this world. You mentioned it. I mean, you, you basically said it. You didn't mention it. You, you said it. We were put into this world to bring godliness into the world in every situation that we are in. So if we're able to focus and study Torah for a time period, for a certain amount of time, okay, beautiful. That's an easy way for the soul to express itself. But there's another way. And that is following the words that we studied, applying the concepts that we learned about, going and living a life of Torah. A life of Torah doesn't necessarily mean living a life that is 24-7 the study of Torah. Living a life of Torah actually means going and living a life according to the Torah values. Think about a guy who goes to work from two different viewpoints, and he's the boss under him, he may have, let's, five employees. He may have 10 employees. He may have hundreds of employees. Okay, he's the boss. He's on top. Now, how many interactions with employees does this person have every single day? Doesn't have to be the boss. He could be a guy. Middle management. Okay, so he has people on the same level as him in other departments that he interacts with. He has his own team. He may have superiors that he has to interact with and how many interactions on an average day does that person go through? It's probably hundreds of interactions. And if in every interaction that person is focused on, can I be the best person that I am able to be according to the, how the Torah's values would want me to react or act in any situation, then what you're actually engaged in is not a simple mundane task of telling the person who answers the phones that you know, you're know you not really doing a great job with the customers who are calling in. You remember, you're the face of the company. Think about, it. you could say that in two different ways. You could say, listen, if this doesn't change, you're out of here. Or you could say to them, can I motivate you to be greater, better? Can I motivate you? And this is simple management skills that a person needs to have. But I think that a lot of these, if you look at the lessons that we learn from the Torah, a lot of these are, all of these are contained within the Torah. So you talk about interacting with people in the right ways. Well, the only way that we know how the Torah would want us to act in that way is by studying Torah. So it's obvious that we need to put in the time to study character development. Here I'm using the example of character development. We sit down and study Musar. We study how to be a big person, how to be a great person. Okay, amazing. Now you're a great person up here in your mind. You're a great person in your mind because you've really thought about these things. Okay? Now go be faced with a challenge. Now go be sitting at your desk when someone comes in and says, "Uh-oh." I don't know what happened, but, and they fill in the blank. Let's see how great a person you are then. I was thinking, you know, just in in personal interactions, when you talk about Musar, but you could move that a a further level. Talk about Lashon Hara. We study the laws of slander, talking about other people, and you can really get into the nitty-gritty when you study it on one hand of what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. You know, my rabbi, Rabbi Berkowitz— made a comment. People think that after you study the laws of Lashon Hara, and these are, there are books full of what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. People think that after you study that, you can't talk anymore. You can hardly say anything. I mean, it's like you have no ability to talk. You're, you're, you have this muzzle on you, that the Lashon Hara muzzle, and now you can't talk about anything. And he said, no, actually, it's very freeing. He felt that after studying the laws, it was very freeing. It freed him, gave him the ability to talk without any guilt, knowing the perfect system that the Torah wants for what we're supposed to talk about, how we're supposed to talk about it, how, in every situation, when it involves other people, what is supposed to come out of your mouth, it was very freeing. Okay, so now you go in the office and someone comes in and says, Did you hear what that guy did? Now, You have clarity in your mind, and at that moment when you make the correct decision about what to talk about or about to say, you know, it's okay, I don't really need to know, or maybe you'll tell me later, or the guy comes in and says, i got to tell you the best story about the lady at the front desk, and you're like, "Uh, it's okay. So what you've now done is you've elevated that moment in time to a spiritual moment. You've overcome possibly a temptation to talk about something you're not supposed to, or you have engaged in talking the way the Torah wants you to talk about. The idea is, is that the soul is placed inside of our body, and we're very good at training our brains to study Torah and to engage our brains in a spiritual activity. What about the rest of our body? God gave us hands. God gave us legs. God gave us reproductive organs. Can we train our entire body to be engaged in spiritual pursuits, can we do it? It's a challenge. But that means if we're able to stand up to that challenge, that means, in essence, every moment that we are engaged in that struggle, every moment that we're engaged in the pursuit of the perfection so that our body is able to serve God— in, with these moments in time, that means that every moment is actually a moment of spirituality. It's a moment of, like we talked about in the study of Torah, where the idea was to connect it all back to God, then in every action that we do, if it's a spiritual moment, it's a moment in time that's connected back to God, that connects me to God, that connects God to that moment. It is definitely true that the the moments in time, as I'm describing, can can be used as spiritual moments of spirituality. But it's, it's really more than that. I want to take it to another level. When your heart and mind is on fire, desiring to attain more knowledge of God through the Torah, more knowledge of how the world works, how I work, how my spirituality works, what God desires in every moment, when I'm on fire for that, other pursuits seem silly. They almost seem like a waste of time. And that that is a challenge. But if you think about it, we were also put in this world to be able to, in everyone's situation on their own, but to be able to support a family and to work on supporting a family, to work in order to give tzedakah, to work in order to... Do positive things with our money. Be productive. Make the world, a simply make the world a better place. That is a Torah value, to simply improve the world. God gave us all the tools and says, okay, now get to work. Now it's true. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, didn't have to work before he ate from the tree. Even though the Torah there mentions that he had to be oved, leavda to work, on the "To Work the Garden," the commentaries explain that obviously what it means is that he would pray, and that was the extent of his work. He would pray that things would grow and they would come popping out of the ground. Well, we don't live like Adam before the sin. We are part of the world, human beings, after the sin. And then that's a bigger discussion about what exactly changed when they ate from the tree, of knowledge of good and evil. But just to say it in one line, what changed was that we were given, it was a curse for Adam because it was a a change in the way the world works, but we were given the opportunity to go out and improve the world through our hands, our feet, our bodies, our minds, and to use those tools to improve the world. So when a person thinks about that, I think that, that it changes your focus when you go to work. I'm not just going... To trade some stocks. I'm not just going to do some wealth management. I'm not just going to stock the shelves at the store. Rather, what I'm doing is I'm going to be engaged in number one, supporting myself and my family. Number two, I am going to improve the world through my actions. And I am going to use the interactions that I have during that time to improve myself as a person, to bring more godliness into the world. I'll tell you a story. It's a short story, but I think it drives home a point, and it changes the way that we go to work. One of my rabbis, his name is Ramosha Moshe Weinberger. His father actually just passed away, but it was interesting. When his father passed away, his father was a Holocaust survivor who came to New York, got himself set up in the garment district doing, I I believe he was a tailor. And that is what he did for a living as his kids were growing up. And he worked very, very hard to support his family. And the lessons that it seems like my rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, has learned from his father go way beyond any lessons that a person would learn from a rabbi. They're much deeper teachings, and just from the way of that he lived his life. And recently, he shared a story. He said that he was trying to explain the idea that when we go to work, we have to remember in the back of our mind that the work is important for other reasons, not that the work is the reason why I go to work just to do the job, but that the work is important because I'm improving the world and I'm supporting my family and my kids are depending on me. The work is important for other reasons. And so he said that growing up when he would call on the phone to the store where his father was working for anything, it didn't matter. His father would stop everything, come to the phone and talk to him about whatever it was. And I was thinking it was so real to me because I can't describe how many times my kids will call after school. They'll call, hey, can I use the PS4 or whatever it may be? And they're asking for permission. And I'm like, I'm in the middle of work. But from the story, I realized and recognized that that's really the wrong attitude. What is the whole point of going to work? The whole point of going to work is for my kids, so it's for the betterment of my kids. So when my kids call, really, the lesson should be that everything stops for the kids. Everything stops for my wife. The whole idea is I'm meant to be here supporting my family. So I get out there and I go do my job. But when the family calls, the world stops. The world stops for them. That's my goal. That's what I'm here for. And it's, that's another opportunity to work on improving oneself. When you get that text message that seems you could think it's a distraction, you have to really, you have to make the calculation in one second, wait, this is more important because this is my family. This is why I do this all day. This is why I do go to work. So that's another layer, another
1: angle, another element to it. I work from home and have for many years. Even though I'm here all the time, I'm not here. Like I'll, I'll walk through the house and they know I'm thinking about something. So I definitely fell in that area and I get critiqued for it constantly. That when my daughter does blow up my phone while I'm on the middle of a conference call and I take the call and say, is this an emergency? And she says, yes, I have to tell you something really exciting I just uh, learned about. Yeah, what you're saying so far makes sense. I see these things as being permanent. I think that was my main concern is I'm working on something that has no permanence to it. Taurus Day does have permanence, but it's all these interactions, building our character traits, it's serving the needs of others, it's l- learning to keep things in perspective and prioritizing them. That is really developing us, which in developing our soul, I guess, and, and that has permanence to it. So, so far, so good. I'm, I'm with you.
0: Yeah, you know, 100%. You're giving your soul another way to express itself in the very mundane activity of going to work because you've now lifted it up. You've, you've raised it up to be a holy pursuit of supporting my family, to be a holy pursuit of doing things that will allow me to give tzedakah. I think it's really important to go one step further. We're talking about things that we do, things that we do in terms of supporting a family, in terms of doing business in an honest way, in terms of having positive interactions with people. But I think you can also talk about it in terms of the moments where you have to hold back. So you work from home. I don't know if you have this challenge, but working in an office environment can be a challenge in terms of relationships between men and women. We see in the news constantly about things that are happening and things that don't show up in the news. We see stuff that happens and it can create a challenge for people to remain faithful to their marriage. It can create a challenge for people to be careful with what they look at and who they discuss what with. If you're sitting in the study hall all day long, And your head's in the book, when do you ever have an opportunity to exercise the fact that you are living a life full of being holy? When do you get to exercise that? And the only way you get to exercise that is you go out into the street or you go to work or you go to the office, or you go to the store. So you might be engaged in a very mundane thing, but in fact, by holding back, by living a life of being a holy person, by only looking at things that you're supposed to look at, by only discussing things in an appropriate way, by only putting yourself in a situation, not putting yourself in private with people who you're not supposed to be secluded with, by doing those things, you're in fact, you are engaged in being a holy person that we know there are parts of the torah that are full of the commandments where god says i want you to be holy be a holy people be a holy people how do you be holy what do you mean you want me to just sit a bookworm you want me to just sit with my head in the book it's a very high level it's very beautiful but when you get out there and you're tested are you able to stand up to the test well that's the world we live in go let's see and you're going to fail you're going to fail and then you're going to do it again and you're going to try better you're going to try again And that is, we can constantly be engaged in things like that. When we do business honestly, there's another level. When we do business honestly. So everything that we learned in terms of doing business, and there are tractates full of it. There's a whole section of the code of Jewish law full of how to do business honestly. Business law. And when we go and engage in honesty in our business practices, honesty, doing it ethically, That is exactly the way that God wants us to be interacting with the world. And in fact, we are allowing that holy part of us, the soul, that spiritual part of us to express itself through these both positive actions that we take and the things that we hold back from doing, the things that we control ourselves from doing.
1: One of the things I have benefited from in my business interactions is once I learned that all my income comes from God. And I don't actually get to close a sale or deal. That's all coming from God. That has been very freeing because then I know I can go into every one of those interactions with a little more gumption. I know I'm just presenting myself at the best possible. I can be a little more fearless in it. Um, And I guess that is also what you're saying is bringing Tor in the world because you're bringing a sense of amuna into all those types of situations.
0: A hundred percent. Emunah is the main thing. Emunah is the basis of everything that we do. And so when we go out and we act in a way that says, this is how a person who is a ma'amin, who is a believer, a person who believes that God is running the show, and a person who has bitachon, bitachon, in modern Hebrew, it's like, means like a security service. But when you have God as your security, as your bodyguard, are you afraid of anything? Can you possibly be afraid of any situation? You have to knock on that door, and you're going to have to go pick up that phone. You're going to have to make that cold call. Can you possibly be afraid? It's not just you on the phone. There's a conference call. It's you, God, and whoever you're calling. So now you have the confidence to go into any situation. This is where God put me. This is the situation that he wants me to go into. I'm going to go in with full confidence. And life gives us tremendous amounts of opportunities to work on believing in God, trusting in God, relying on God. It gives us Tremendous amount of opportunities, and that is all part of why we are engaged in the world, why we're interacting with the world. Why don't we in general on the mass scale sit ourselves in the study hall or in our office and sit with a book and just study Torah all day? It's a very high level. That's an amazing thing if a person's able to do that, but I'm trying to, what I'm trying to bring out is that there are benefits of actually engaging in the world. There is holiness and spirituality waiting for us in every situation that we're able to bring out through just regular day-to-day activities, whether that be work, recreation, time spent with the family. We're able to bring out those moments of holiness in our entire lives, throughout our entire lives.
1: One of the things I did change back when coronavirus started was I decided that my musar needed to be that I wanted to fear God more than I feared this virus. And so one of the things I flipped on a dime was I started wearing my yarmulke everywhere. I used to just do it on Shabbos when I was here and then when i go to your side of town. And it does act as a constant reminder that God is hearing Everything that's about to come out of my mouth. So it does give a sense of making sure you're saying everything with total truth and just using your power of speech in a way that he would find pleasing.
0: That's exactly right. I remember growing up, my mother, the main last, and I grew up in San Diego, so I grew up out there. There are not a lot of religious Jews walking around, definitely not dressed as, uh, you know, a lot of people dressed with yarmulkes or tzitzit walking around. But the number one thing that she wanted us to know before we went into a store, before we went to the amusement park, before we went to a playground, the number one thing she wanted us to know was make a kiddush Hashem, sanctify God's name in this world. And it sounds like a tall task, but I remember her drilling it in from when we were very, very young. She would always say, okay, guys, we're going into the store. She didn't say behave. She didn't say don't get the gimmies. Well, maybe she said those two also, but that was afterwards. But what was her main lesson? We're going into the store. Make a kiddush Hashem. Sanctify God's name in the world. Let people look at you and say, wow, that's what it means to be a person who wears a yarmulke. That's what it means. Look, look at how those kids are behaving. That's a lesson that I feel like we need to tell the kid inside of us all throughout the day. Just make a kiddush Hashem. Just make people look at you and say, wow, that's what it means to study Torah? A person who lives like that? A person who talks like that? A person who interacts with me like that? They say, "Wow, that is impressive." That's what it means when you're that you're bringing godliness into the world. That's called a kiddush Hashem. You are sanctifying God's name in the world. People say this Jewish guy. It's not just a yarmulke on his head because that's how he was brought up, or not brought up, or that's what he decided to do. That yarmulke on his head is actually doing its job. You know what the word yarmulke means, right? Yare Malka, Yare Malka, Yarmulka is means the fear of the king. So. It's Very appropriate that that's what you should choose in terms of exercising your fear, your fear of God over the fear of Corona. That fear is
1: beautifully translated to the yarmulke. When I go out here in Kingwood, Texas, the yarmulke, yeah, they've probably seen that before. But the seat seats, they've never seen that before. But I know I'm representing the Jewish people. I'm representing God, and I'm way more cognizant on how I'm behaving being polite to everyone. I just know it naturally just occurs because I think that alone has actually helped me over the last few months since I've been doing that, making those mundane activities, if you will, bring some of that tour and that godliness into it.
0: Beautiful, exactly. I love it, I love it. I, I, I wanna give you a blessing. It's it's fresh, you're walking around with it, it's fresh, you feel the responsibility on your on top of your head. The blessing is that you should always have that feeling forever. That you should have that feeling of being responsible to be a representative of God in the world through my actions and my interactions, that you should feel that forever. And you should never just feel like it's a piece of cloth on top of your head, that it's found its spot. You should feel like that forever. You're a representative of God in the world. And you're going out and showing the world what
1: it means to live with God. It's a beautiful thing. Normally, I I travel, and that's where a lot more of the tests occur traveling to conferences and you want to have a drink at the bar and there's crude conversation going on or there's women there. There's more tests there. And that's why I'm sort of jealous of the full-time yeshiva student because they can just hide out from all those potential mishaps.
0: It's nice, but you have to remember that that getting out there and being tested is the way that you grow. And meeting the challenge is the way that you grow into perfection. Running from the challenge is also a method that we do use at times, right? Running away from the challenge. But our lives are such that we are challenged with many, many things. So that's how we grow. That's We, get, we, get, we become great through those challenges.
1: I think the way I'm going to approach this now, because one of the things I've done my entire life is is I lift weights in the morning. Something my grandfather got me into because I was, parents were always moving every year and I was always the new kid, the smallest kid, and only Jewish kid. So working out, learning how to fight was a skill set my grandpa wanted to make sure I had for dealing with my first week at the new school. But I've kept that habit with me. But now it, I always sort of look at it as a metaphor of the horse and rider. You know, that you're just, you are in control, your body works for you, you're doing what's in its best interest. And that whole concept of you're getting physically stronger by you're adding on more resistance. And I think what I'm going to do after this conversation is I'm going to approach all those work interactions like a moussar weightlifting exercise routine. And I'm going to mess up, I'm going to lose my patience maybe with coworkers when things aren't getting done on time, but I'm going to get better at it. I'm just going to learn how to be more patient and and make sure I'm talking to people in a way that that builds them up. And just, I think maybe approaching it that way. Take that one habit I have of weightlifting every morning and then take it into like a Musar workout and all my interactions throughout the day.
0: Love it. Love it. Keep a log. Make sure you keep a log. Like for weightlifting, when you say I'm going up five pounds every week, you got to know where you are or you're going to add some on the next time you're doing it. And the next time it's leg day, you're going to go up. Where was I again? Keep a log. Keep a note. So you have an interaction that doesn't go great. Jot it down in your Musar logbook. And Check yourself. And when you study something on the opposite side of that page, I think it's worthwhile. When you study something, you're like, oh, that's awesome. So I just learned that whole chapter about patience or about how not to be lazy. Well, can I translate that into the real world? can I give myself a test this week to find three times when I could possibly lose patience and I can overcome it or even one, right? You don't want to put on too much weight, right? Right from the beginning. But can I find one? Can I find one? And then exercise that muscle that you just studied about. You just studied about the muscle of patience or the muscle of not being lazy or the muscle of being kind. Okay. Can I find, and at the end of the week, come back and Do my check boxes? Yes, I worked out my kindness muscle, my patience muscle. You know, I think it's it's beautiful. Check, but make sure you keep keep a log. Take what you learn and make it applicable in a way that's very, very real. Look for opportunities to apply what you study, especially in character development. Look for opportunities to apply what you're studying, and then come back at the end of the week and say, How'd I do? How many times did I get to the gym of patients? How many times did I get to that gym and use that as a way to grow? Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, that that that's a great idea. Any other ideas on how we can use our livelihood? I mean, really, it comes down just to all our interactions in the world around us to, to use those interactions in a way that is allowing your soul to express itself in this world.
0: There's another element to this. When we're on fire in terms of studying and in terms of attaining more Torah knowledge, we talked about how we can use that knowledge in our day-to-day interactions, and that's Amazing. amazing. But there's another thing is that when we're on fire and then we are pulled away from it, something that you love, you almost feel drawn back towards it when you're away from it. They say that when you know something is really enjoyable, when you know an experience is really enjoyable, is when you are almost finished with it, but you don't want it to be finished. An example that they give, I think it's the most beautiful example, many people have the custom to bless their kids on Friday night, to give their kids a special blessing on Friday night. It's a beautiful custom. But could you imagine... A parent who in the moment that they are there with their hands hovering over their child's head and saying, praying silently that their child should have success in their life and should be able to overcome their own challenges, and they're giving them the most beautiful blessing. At that moment when they're giving them the blessing, can you imagine a parent wanting to be like, I wish I was anywhere else in the world? no such thing. What does the parent want? The parent just wants to stay there for a few more seconds. Just give me a little bit more time. How how often do we have that quiet moment? Our kid is standing there at attention, our hands on top of their head, and we're silently praying for their success. That's a moment that we would don't want to Leave us because it's a moment of true enjoyment. And I think that that being drawn back towards Torah study doesn't have to be a moment that ends. What do I mean? We live in a world where you can have a podcast on your phone. You could have probably set it up in your car already. Bluetooth, you get in your car, you go drive even a four-minute drive. But when Bluetooth connects, it's already set that it goes to a podcast. You're back in the study hall. You're back in the book. You're back studying as long as you're listening to the right podcasts. You can load yourself up, and we're so blessed to live in this world of technology where you can load yourself up with so much, uh, so many opportunities to interact with Torah study, even when you are not actually sitting in front of a book and studying Torah. If it's something that you truly enjoy and something that you truly are searching for more opportunities to do and you feel that when you step away from it, you're sort of drawn back towards it because it's such an enjoyable experience and you know that it's the truth and you want to find out more. Well, then make sure that you in your downtime are doing things that also indicate this feeling. So, in your downtime driving to the supermarket or walking through the supermarket, you can be still be plugged into that studying. You can still be plugged into that growth. And that's a very positive thing. Uh, so use technology. And I think that, you know, when you do that, it changes your drive as opposed to listening to six minutes of commercials and then two minutes of whatever talk a radio show happens to pop onto the radio. You're now actually making a conscious decision to make my drive, my car ride, make it a Torah study jam session. I'm going to jam four minutes of this class in right here and I'm going to do some Torah study here. I'm drawn back towards it. You don't have to say, this is my time to study Torah. This is my time to work. Figure out if there are other opportunities to infuse Torah study into your regular everyday activities. If you can figure them out, all the blessing to you. Use technology and use it to your advantage.
1: Thank you, Rabbi. I'll close by sharing with you the story back when you were teaching Musar out at the, the Shulat here in Humboldt. And you had taught a class and and part of the Musar subject was on learning how to be present. Knowing when to be internal and contemplative, which is where I spend most my time by default. I think I'm a natural introvert. But then knowing when to be present in the world around you. I remember I was thinking about the entire way home. I pulled over to the gas station, got some gas, went in to get some water. I was coming around to pay for the water and a friend came up to me and said, Dan, how are you? And I said, I'm good. He goes, did you not hear me yelling your name like three or four times across the store? And I said, no, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I was in this amazing Musar class learning about how to be present. I just could not stop thinking about it. I still have that same problem. I think that's, that is the link to solve the problem I've been having is learning how to take what I'm learning. And when I'm in the world, now take what you learned and bring it into the world.
0: And remember God's running the world. So Why do you think that opportunity presented itself right after your class about being present? It was so that now, eight years, nine years later, you could say, oh, coming full circle. Now I see it. Thank you for that lesson. Thank you for the lesson in the gas station.
1: Excellent. Rabbi, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. I hope we can have you on again to teach us more Torah. And I think you shared some amazing insights. Many of us struggle with the same topic. And I think the insights you shared with us be able to bring with us into our work week, make it more holy, help to express our soul in this world. Thank you very much for your time and your wisdom. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very, very much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.